Uh, we're still in First Peter. Uh, we're going to land the plane here pretty quick in First Peter. We've been in First Peter for a while. We're in chapter 5, which is the final chapter, and we can kind of see the runway now on this deal. And uh, don't know yet where we're going to go next. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot to dismiss the kids. Kiddos may go. The day that I remember to will be a weird day. You know? And so we're getting towards the end. We're not sure where we're going to go yet, but we'll surprise you. We're going to go somewhere in the Bible, uh, which is a plus. So First uh, Peter chapter 5, this sermon is going to be maybe a little bit different um, than what you're used to hearing. And as soon as I read through this, you'll know why. So chapter 5, verse 1, First Peter, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. It's going to be a little bit different today because I'm going to talk a lot about me and a lot about us as pastors because that's who Peter's addressing today. And he, you guys just kind of get to be flies on the wall with hearing what he has to say to us. So uh, in a way, you get to keep us accountable with these things. Um, when you think of professional sports teams, they typically all have a jersey, and that jersey has a logo on it or a mascot, right? And it's usually there to convey um, usually one of two things. Either it's something that's super intimidating as far as the mascot or the logo, uh, or, or it's something that just tells you something about the fan base or uh, the place in which um, the team is, is from, right? So I'm a Southern California kid, right? So in the 80s, we had, obviously, we had more than this, but it was all about the Raiders and the Lakers and the Dodgers and the Kings. And so when you looked at, like, the Raiders logo, it was like this nasty pirate dude, like one-eyed pirate dude with a helmet on and a couple swords on his back. Like, it just said, like, I'm going to kick your butt. You know what I mean? And then uh, with the Kings, which happens to be my favorite team that I still follow, even though they've been horrible for about four years now, um, <clears throat> they are obviously the Kings. They have a crown on their... Jersey, their mascot is a lion. It's the king of the jungle. There's no one bigger. There's no one badder, right? And so it's all about intimidation. I was thinking last week about the Dodgers and the Lakers because even as a Southern California kid, like, I never understood those names. Like, they didn't mean anything to me. They didn't strike fear in anybody, right? Does anyone know where the Lakers got their name? Not the guy from Minnesota. Does anybody know? And not my brother either. Yeah, so they were first, I think, the Minneapolis Lakers. And um, that's all they have back there are lakes and mosquitoes and, like, super big horse flies that will dry blood because uh, I got bit by one once. But they have lakes, right? And so it's just funny that when they went to Los Angeles uh, that they kept that name because you don't have any lakes in Los Angeles. You have, like, an aqueduct, and that's it. There's really nothing else. But then, nonetheless, it said something about the place that they were from, Okay. The Dodgers. Does anybody know where the Dodgers got their name? They were obviously Brooklyn, right? And they were first the Brooklyn Grays in the late 1800s. And then one year, they decided to change their name to the Brooklyn Bridegrooms because they had, because they had six dudes on the team that year that got married in one year. And so they changed their name. Then they changed it to the Dodgers eventually, because all their fan base, the pedestrians that were so poor they had to walk to the ballpark, had to dodge cars on the way there. And so they became the Dodgers, and of course it stuck when it went to Los Angeles. Okay? If the Christian faith had a jersey with a mascot, what would it be? What would it say about the fan base? about the people that make up the Christian faith. And I believe it would be a sheep, which isn't very scary. In fact, I don't, I don't think there's any professional teams that I can think of that have ever had a sheep. 
as their mascot, like on the front of their jersey. There's nothing threatening about that. There's nothing aggressive about it. There's nothing that says, I'm going to kick your butt because i got a sheep on my jersey. We're the sheep, right? When we think about our currency, when we think about our coinage in this nation, the animal imagery on that currency, we think of buffalo. We think of eagle. We think of animals that are powerful and majestic, not sheep. We don't put that on our currency. When it comes to protecting our property and our homes and our lives, we get guard dogs. We don't get guard sheep because they can't guard anything. We would be guarding them the whole time. We don't hang signs out in front of our house that say, beware of the sheep. If we did, the thieves would be sure to come back to that house. The reason is because they are docile creatures. They are timid creatures. It is them that requires guarding and care in order to survive. They don't guard or protect anything. They require a shepherd. And as we travel through the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New, we see an overwhelming theme of sheep and shepherd everywhere. Everywhere. Cover to cover. As we read through the Bible narrative, the picture of a shepherd and his relationship to the sheep is one of the most important, prominent themes that exists there. It is a picture of care. It is a picture of protection. It is a picture of sacrifice and devotion and commitment and watchfulness on the part of the shepherd. And as you look at this in scriptures, a shepherd is typically found presented in a good light. It's someone that's strong. It's someone that's important. It's someone that's necessary. It's a caretaker. But sheep, on the other hand, when you look at them in Scripture, are not usually put in the greatest of light. For example, Isaiah 53. All we, like, have gone astray. All our own way. That is not a compliment. That's what we do. You and I get lost so quick. We get lost so easy. We get sidetracked and distracted. Everything's a squirrel for us in this world. And we go. And we get in trouble. We are prone to wander, like the old hymn writer said. We are prone to wander. We need help. We need to be contained. Sheep get lost easy. They wander into danger easy. They're picked off easy. They're vulnerable. They're unable to take care of themselves. They do not navigate well. They do not self-correct well. They do not sense direction well on their own. One professor in philosophy said, the existence, excuse me, the existence of sheep is evidence against the theory of evolution. There is no way sheep could have survived natural processes. They're simply not fit for it. They require constant oversight, constant leading, constant rescue, constant cleaning, or they will die. Most of you know my buddy Peyton Jones. Uh, he wrote um, a few books now that I think some of you have grabbed and read from time to time. But before he was back here writing books and speaking at conferences, he was actually a church planter in Wales. Do you know what's in Wales? Lots of sheep, lots of pasture. That's it. And the dude that was mentoring him for years was a shepherd. And Peyton recalls that almost every day there was a point or multiple points in the day when they would get into this dude's car and they would just drive the grid around these pastures. Why? Because you would find sheep everywhere that were laying down on their side. They were laying down on their side because the water was so heavy in their wool that it would weigh them down and they would tip over. They would fall over. Or because the mud had become so packed into their wool that it became heavy and they tipped over. Or because their poo got into their wool and got heavy and tipped them over. And so these guys would drive from sheep to sheep and get out of the car and pick the sheep up so that they could get back on their feet to safety, to a safe place. Otherwise, they would die. And this is what he did for a number of years in Wales, as he trained to pastor a church. I'm not suggesting anything by that, by the way. A shepherd once wrote a book, one that he published on the subject, 
Sheep don't just take care of themselves. They require more than any class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. Sheep do not take care of themselves. They need to be taken of care of or they will die. Having said that, all that to say, Peter here in chapter 5 addresses the people of God as a flock. Just like we see through the rest of Scripture. In other words, we're like sheep. And he's not doing it to put us down, but he's doing it to make known that there is a higher standard for those who are called to lead the flock, though they themselves are also part of the flock. He's making a distinction. There is more expected of the leader, and there is more required of the leader. And this is honestly why, for so many years, I resisted going into ministry. There were years that I had that feeling like, God's doing this with you. And I ignored it and tried to put it out of my mind. Because I, I, didn't, I didn't want what I knew was going to have to come with it. The greater responsibility and the, and the higher standards that come with it. And so I hid from it for years. And people that knew me would come to me and say, Dude, like you really should be like stepping this direction. And I would make excuses why I wasn't stepping that direction. But this is exactly why I resisted for so many years. is because even then, as a young, stupid Christian, I knew that the one that leads the flock of God has a lot that is required of him. And there were some things I just didn't want to give up. I was just too selfish to even want to go there. I didn't want to make the sacrifices. And quite frankly, I know who I am. I was scared for you guys. <laughs> I was like, okay, if you're calling me, like, this might go all right. But, like, I know that, like, my specialty in life is blowing things up. You know what I mean? It's like throwing a grenade in the middle of something and pulling the pin. And so there, there was a little bit of that there. But there, there's, a, there's a higher standard for those who step into the ministry as sheep to lead the sheep of God. And it's real. If there is someone who is going to be tapped by God to lead his flock, he must meet certain standards, certain criteria. There's more expected of him. And this is what Peter's calling the church's attention to here in this section this morning. The leaders of the flock of God and the character and the motivations that must accompany them. Those who are to proctor the care of Jesus to the people of Jesus. Verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. And then he goes on. Let's stop right there. Um, it is really hard for me to believe that this is the same Peter that we see in the Gospels. Do you see that there? Like something radical has happened to this dude. Something has gone on inside of this guy that is not explainable that is not human, that is not accomplished by the will of man, but by only something that's over the will of man. This is not the same Peter. He was pompous in the Gospels. He was arrogant. He was prideful. He was self-serving. He was self-concerned. But this Peter is not. By all rights, this is an opportunity for this guy to say, I exhort you as Peter, the apostle, the best friend of Jesus, the closest to him. I know John was there too, but you, you're with me. He was there, right? But he does not do that. He identifies himself as one of them, a fellow elder. That's pretty incredible. And I know that even though this is a little bit outside of context, we're talking about elders here, I want you to know this. Um, and I know you've heard it before, and I just want to make sure you hear it again. We, uh, pastors, shepherds, elders at the door, do not think in any way, shape, or form that we are above you. We do not think that we are better than you. We do not think that God loves us more than he loves you. We do not think that we are more special than you are in any way. We even do stupid, little, intentional things like not build a stage up here to show you that. Some of you thought, oh, they're just too poor to build a stage or whatever. Like, no. We actually have not built a stage because we stand on the same ground that you stand on. I know that's a stupid little psychological thing, but it's the truth. All of that says something. We are in no way above you guys. We are one of you. We are a student. First, we are learning. We are 
growing, just like you. We are in this deal with you. In fact, these sermons that you get, we get them first. Every single pastor makes sure that he sits down, and it's not just about writing a good sermon, that we sit down and we examine ourselves. We scrutinize ourselves before the Word of God, before we ever bring it to you. We place ourselves in front of it, and we have God do His business with us. We have Him impact us. We have Him speak to us. We have Him correct us before we come and we offload it to you. And again, this isn't a boast. I want to assure you of who it is that you have here. You have men who do not think that they are in one way better than you on any level, because we're not. We are one of you. We're learning to do this with you. We're learning to grow in Christ with you. We're learning to press in to the glories of God, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, just like you, with you. All right? I'm, that, that was too much, so I, I need to like restrain myself and come back to my notes. Peter, by all means, seems to to have this opportunity uh, to play a wild card here as far as who he is, his privilege before God, but he doesn't do that. Um, I love how he identifies himself in the same way as them. A fellow elder, I'm doing this alongside you. I'm doing this with you. Now, there is something that Peter is able to say here that we cannot say, and that is that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. You and I were not. We're 2,000 years deep into this thing since Jesus walked the earth. How glorious would that have been to walk with our Lord, those streets, to see those things with our eyes, to hear those words with our ears? Peter did. But what he brings out over and above all of it is that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And this is really important. And the reason it's important is because if you've been through with us through this whole book, this entire book is about how to suffer well in a world that is opposed to and hostile to the Christian faith. This whole book has been a letter with blood all over it. This book has been all about suffering. And what Jesus wants, I, I believe what Peter wants us to know by bringing this out is that Nothing that's being brought to you and I, as far as our conduct in this hostile world and suffering, is not something that Jesus himself has not already done, has not already experienced. That Christ himself, God in the flesh, came and identified in every way, in every point to our humanity and our struggles and our pain. Every bit of it, he took on first. And he wants us to know that, all culminating in the full payment for sin, praise God, which none of us have done and none of us can do and none of us will ever do. Jesus did it. He suffered in ways that you and I cannot even imagine for you and I. And Peter wants us to know that he was a witness to those sufferings. And yet he doesn't say this. He doesn't say this to one-up anybody as if he's superior, but as an encouragement in that he can assure us, or them, the church then, that everything that we believe about Christ is true because he saw it. That's why he's saying this. He saw it. And a witness is simply someone who sees and hears something and then tells others what he's seen and heard, just like a witness is today. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus. We are not, and yet then uh, there is something in what Peter is saying here that I think every elder must possess, um, and that is that every elder, no matter who they are, must have a close walk with Jesus. I know that I'm stretching here. I know that I'm, I'm going outside a proper exposition, but I think it's something that should be said. Every elder, whether they walked in the flesh with Christ or not, should have a close walk with Jesus. The leader must be one who, though he may not have been in the flesh with Jesus, he, who, when he walked on the earth, walks with Jesus, continually following Christ, growing in Christ, learning from Christ, living with Christ. Brothers and sisters, a pastor is not a perfect man, but he is one that wants to be. He is a man who spends time with the perfect one. He's a man who desires to be like Jesus. He's a man who's seeking to live out all that he reads in here. 
in the scriptures, in every area of his life. I always tell new believers every time they come in or if I'm discipling somebody or somebody's new and they're like, what do I do? It's like, you need to find somebody right now. If it's a man, it's a man. It's a woman, it's a woman. Men work with men, women work with women. Let's just get that out of the way right now, okay? That goes down in here for many reasons I think we all know. But the first thing I will tell them is find the one who's actually walking close with Jesus and climb into their pocket and just peek out for daylight every once in a while. Don't even come out of there. Just follow them around. Everywhere. Who is it? Well, it's the one that, that walks with Jesus in his marriage. It's the one who walks with Jesus in his private life. It's the one who walks with Jesus in his parenting. In his work ethic. At his job. Even if he works for a tyrant. It's the one who suffers well. It's the one who repents often. It's the one who treats his enemies as if they're not. This is the man that you crawl into their pocket, or woman. Because it is that man or woman that follows God, that walks with Jesus. It does you no good to follow one who says that he knows Jesus, but doesn't follow him in life and conduct. There's a lot of those in the church. You shouldn't follow that person for the same reasons you wouldn't fly on an airplane with a pilot that's blind. You know what I'm saying? That man cannot see to navigate. If you're desiring to navigate the Christian walk in a way that's pleasing to God, you want to be led by someone that can see. That can see to navigate. A true elder of the church may not have physically walked with Jesus like Peter did, but he's a man who walks with Jesus. A man who sees Jesus, thus being able to navigate the way and to lead others in that way. Peter then goes on to say, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, he immediately shifts from something unique to him back to something that they are all anticipating together. And yes, I am very aware that he glimpsed glory. The Mount of Transfiguration, he glimpsed it, but he did not attain it. It was not something that was given to him. He just simply witnessed a fraction of what it will be. He is still waiting for the same thing that you and I are waiting for. So he basically says here, unlike you, I was personally with Jesus, but like you, I'm waiting for him to return. I'm waiting for my sins to be gone once for all. I'm waiting for a glorified body and a glorified mind and a glorified heart so that I can worship with all that I am the living God forever. He wants that. Now, before we go much further in this text, there's something I want you guys to take notice of. Yeah, I am taking a ton of rabbit trails today. I get it. But I think they're worth it. There's something that we need to take note of, and that is this. There are three key words, key points of identification that Peter uses here in addressing the leaders of the church. Number one, Elder. You know what an elder is? It's the word presbyteros, which is where we get the word presbyterian, which speaks to age, but more than age, it speaks to maturity. It's a level of maturity that exists. So we're talking spiritual maturity. Example, Timothy. Age-wise was a young dude, but he was apparently spiritually mature. Okay, So he would qualify as an elder, as he did. Elder is one word. Oversight, which usually when we see it in the Scriptures, it says overseer, is the word episkopos, which is where we get the word episcopal, which is where we get the word bishop. It's someone who oversees or sees over, who looks over. Kind of like Peyton and his shepherd buddy as they were driving those roads, and they were, you know... Taking a census, they were looking over everything, making sure everything was in place. The third word is shepherd, which is pastor. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what you need to know. All three of these words here describes, addresses, and references the same person. The same person. Do you see that? He's not... He's not calling out or parsing out three different groups of people here. He's talking to one. 
And he's calling them elders, he's calling them overseers, and he's calling them pastors. What's my point? It is this. One of the distinctions that you will see when you come to the door that is very different than anywhere else is that we have a plurality of co-equal pastors who are also elders, who are also overseers. We hear all the time, people that are new come up and they're like, okay, you guys are the pastors, but who's the elders? And it's like, where'd you get that? Like you're looking, you're talking to them. The way that church is done, the church has fallen in, especially in America, to a very corporate model. In other words, we, fit, we, 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 we tend to follow and mimic successful corporate business models to how to do successful church. And we've done this also with leadership and our leadership framework in the church, where we have the senior pastor, varsity, and then we have junior varsity, the elders, everybody else, So we've created a whole separate group, and then we've got a group here and a group there and a group there, but there's only one of these dudes. Why do we do that? We do it for several reasons. One, most churches don't have enough money to finance multiple pastors, right? I mean, that's just clear. And if we know anything about the American church, we usually vote, make our decisions, grow it, and um, we we do the work of the church basically through the lens of money. It's a shame, but it's just true. The other reason we do it that way is because most pastors, shepherds, overseers are type A personalities. They are not dudes that know how to play in the sandbox well with anybody else. You know what I'm saying? So we don't even try. We don't put them in a sandbox with somebody else. The buck kind of needs to stop with somebody, the leader among leaders, and so we've, we've fallen into this. And I want you to know that the Bible doesn't teach this framework. It doesn't mean that that's horrible that other churches are doing that. There are godly people doing this. There are people that love the Lord that, have, that, 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 that operate and do ministry within this framework. And it's okay. God's bigger than that. But I just want you to understand, since we're in this text, what you see here. An elder is an overseer is a pastor. That's what it says. We good? All right, cool. So he comes now um, to address the elders. And I want you to notice this, too. This is kind of interesting. Yeah, we're actually going to get into the text now. Um, I'm not going to keep you here too long. We'll, we'll move fast. Um, I, want you to in, I want you to notice again, I think I mentioned this in the beginning, who he's speaking to in verse 1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. He's talking to you. He wants you to hear everything that he's about to say to them. Then in two, he shifts and he speaks directly to the leaders, okay? Which is where we're at here. Verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, he says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Let's stop right there. It is helpful for us to take note of the fact that pretty much any passage in Scripture is driven by the verbs in that passage. And this text that we have this morning is no different. The driving verb of these verses is found in verse 2. And it is the verb, shepherd. Yes, that word is usually a noun. But here it is not. In fact, when we get to verse 4, it will be used as a noun. But in verse 2, it's used as a verb. To shepherd is an action, in other words. It's something that is done, that is performed, that is walked in. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And what does it mean to shepherd or pastor as a verb? It means to feed. Any of you using the old King Jimmy still? Well, it, it actually translates it that way. To feed. It's what it means. It's what a shepherd does first and foremost. He makes sure that the sheep can feed on good food without getting killed. That's their job. The shepherd's job is to feed them, to lead them to good food. Why? Because it's necessary, good food, for us to live, for life. And Peter knows this really well, doesn't he? He knows that this is of utmost importance above all else because Jesus drilled him on it. 
Jesus took him to task on this subject and made sure he understood what his job was. When he came to Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yeah, I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. And then he says it again a second time. And by the third time, Peter's getting tripped out, right? He's actually getting a little bit mad. He's like, come on. Like, you know, I already answered this. And besides, like, you know all things. He says, if you love me, feed my sheep. This is the primary duty of an under-shepherd. Primary duty is to feed the sheep. If you love Jesus and are called to be a pastor, your job is to lead sheep to green pasture, to feed them. This is what one who is called by God, like Peter, will do. There are so many pastors who have come, and who are, and who will come, that are not called by God to do what they're doing. Do you guys understand that? And I want you to understand two ways where you can identify the difference pretty quickly of what man is called by God and what man is not called by God. Number one, if a man has been called by God to pastor, you will tell the difference in who it is that they are feeding. The flock or themselves. In that is also has to do with what kind of food he's using to feed them. Um, a calling, we're gonna go on, we're gonna go on one more rabbit trail, okay? Just one more. I'll, I'll ignore the other ones. A calling implies a caller. And when it comes to leading the flock of God, it is God that calls, not man. God. A calling is that which you cannot go to seminary to learn. I have nothing wrong with seminary. In fact, one day, I would love to go to seminary. Like, what a dream that would be. To just sit around all day with your nose in the books, looking at Jesus, learning about Jesus, like rad, right? But a calling is not something that you can go to seminary to learn. It's something you cannot buy. It is something education cannot produce. It is something the world cannot give you because it's not the world's to give. One might ask, then, how else can you know the difference? Well, I just, I just mentioned the one as far as the, he feeds the flock of God, not himself, has to do with the kind of food he uses. The second way is this. He is not a self-appointed man. This one's a little deeper. It is not the man who got into ministry because he got up late one night in the middle of the night and went to the refrigerator for a glass of orange juice, and God told him, you should go start a church. I've heard those stories so many times. I'm not saying God can't do it. It's just been my experience that that's not usually how he does it. It is a man who has the gifting coming out of him in such a way that other godly people see it and affirm it. That's how we know somebody's called to ministry. See, it's done through succession of godly people. That's the man that God has spoken to and called. We cannot trust ourselves, guys. We cannot trust ourselves. And if you think you can, you can't trust yourself. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We do not understand them. We do not understand the motives that come out of our hearts half the time. What we think is our biggest asset and our biggest gifting is oftentimes radically different than the people that know us around us and live with us. You ever notice that? I have, a, I have a, a talent of having a really high opinion of myself in a lot of areas. And I, and I know that this is a shared talent. I've, I've seen it in you guys too. <laughs> we cannot trust ourselves. It is through a succession of outside identification and confirmation that a calling is legitimized. Otherwise, you just got a bunch of people doing whatever the heck they want to do. And we see this in the church today. Truth is, it's always been there. It's nothing new. But it's just so loud now because of social media. This is why we have the circus going on around us that we do in the church today. We've got a bunch of self-appointed men with magnetic charisma, a type A personality, and above average oration skills knowing full well that they can make a living at using it. 
It's not hard to plant a church, and it's not hard to make one grow. But this isn't how God picks his team. See, God takes the weak, and he takes the base, and he takes the foolish, and he takes the uneducated, and he takes the unlikely, and he taps them to change the world and to wake the dead so that when it happens, everybody knows God did it and not them. That's how God picks his team for the kingdom. It's the opposite of you and I. We've all talked about this before. When we used to be on the schoolyard and we would go out for recess and everybody lined up on the backstop to play kickball, there's a group of dudes that always got picked first. And there's a group of people that always got picked last because they had no game. But the way that God does it is that He comes up and He lets the other team pick everybody He wants first. He takes all the best ones according to the world. And God is extremely pleased after that to scoop up the ones that are left. The ones that can't play. And then He makes a winning team out of them. Why? So that He receives the glory for every life changed. For every sin forgiven. That's why. He does things a lot different than you and I would do them, doesn't he? And, and I, again, I don't mean to imply anything for you guys filling this room here today. But the truth is that's who we are. We are the ones <clears throat> that the world wouldn't look twice at and say, well, that's someone who's special. We are misfits. We are marginalized. We are the bad news bearers. And God is pleased to use us because it brings him glory. Anything that we're able to accomplish and do, guys, is because of him in us. Any kudos that goes on goes right back to him because he's the one performing it. Every bit of it. Squirrel. I'm going to go back. Wow, this is taking a lot longer than I thought it was going to. Peter then continues to tell us how to shepherd the flock of God. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, is how it should be shepherded. I love how he says, do it like this, not like this, because I'm not that bright of a guy. And so like, I like when people spell out like what it actually looks like. Give me a job description. You know, Tell me what, what to do and what not to do. It's very helpful. First of all, we are not to shepherd because we have to. But rather, we are to shepherd because we have to. You guys know what I'm saying? We are not to shepherd because someone's putting a gun to our head, but because we would go crazy if we didn't. Because everything in us desires it. Because the passion is there in a way that we know that we must do it, that we have even been built and wired and born for such a thing. And it's because of that that we can't not do it. This man Peter is talking about is a man who does not feel trapped into pastoring, but is compelled into pastoring. Nor does he have motive or thought of his own personal benefit or gain. It is not a means to his own personal end. It is the reason he exists and he knows that. Having said that, if this part of the man is true, about the man uh, that is serving not under compulsion but willingly, he will most likely not be there for personal gain, selfish motive, fleshly benefit either. They usually fall together. But he will be there for the glory of God. He will be there for the love of others, no matter what his salary looks like. Or if he even has one. No matter what his fame or lack of is he will be there eagerly and not for shameful game. And again, I want to make sure you guys know that we believe this wholeheartedly. We started this church 10 years ago. We did not only not receive paychecks, um, we actually were the ones putting out money, the pastors, to keep the lights on and the coffee going. We did not get into it because there was any money. There wasn't any. There was no money. We didn't come for the money. We came to see a community changed. 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we were so happy to do it. We were so privileged to do it that God would even like tap us um, and say like, hey, I want you to do this for me was so mind blowing to us. We were like giddy as little kids. It was like it was like we had gotten Willy Wonka's golden ticket and been invited to the factory. You know what I'm saying? And we, we were just like so happy to be there. We didn't know what was going to happen or how it was going to happen or how we were going to pay bills or anything like that. It didn't matter. We just wanted to please God and love others. And we're still here. I want you to know this. We do take, me, me and Brent, actually all of us, we all get paid now. We all get compensated for what we do. If that ever went away tomorrow, if this church financially dried up tomorrow, we will still be here doing what we do. Because we're not doing it for that. I promise you. We are not here for anybody's money. It may look different if it dried up tomorrow. And I'm not saying to let it dry up like the box is located there and there. Um, but but if, if it did, like it may look different, like we may have to go get other jobs again, get our old jobs back, and we may not be able to put as much into it as we do, but we're not going to go anywhere. We're not here for that. I want you to know that. What a privilege it is to get to do what we do. It is such an honor for us to get to do what we do. We are the luckiest men. That we get to proclaim the glories of God to the people of God. That we get to walk through this life with front row seats with the people of God. Locking arms on the way to glory, on the way to the promised land. That's a rad thing. It's a heavy thing. There's times it's super heavy. But it's an awesome thing that we're privileged and honored to do. Verse 3, not domineering. Two more verses left. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Our strength and our effectiveness as leaders is not through power. It is not through control. It is through lifestyle and display. In other words, like I said earlier, we buy into everything that we preach first. We look at ourselves first. We examine ourselves first. We are, not, we are here to be overseers, not overlords. We are not here to control you. We are not here to dictate every move you make. We are not here to make you just like us. We are here to tell you what God wants and to lovingly encourage you to be obedient to it because it's what's best for you every time. I know some of you don't get that, and I know that it doesn't always feel like that when we come to you with something, but what God says in His Word about any given thing in life is always what's best for us every single time. I didn't know this as a kid. All I thought was that, um, that, that, that he was here to rain on every party that I wanted to have. Like every time I desired to do something, I would see or hear something out of the Word, and he would kill it. And it'd be like, oh, so you just don't want me to be happy then. You know what I mean? And, and it's like, no, he actually knows what's best for you. You don't. And as I've been in the Lord, and the more years that I walk in the Lord, and I get closer to what holiness is and goodness, and the Lord feeds me, all that's starting to change. I'm starting to see it now. I'm starting to love the things that God loves and hate the thing that God hates. And I know that it is good now. It's the greatest good. It's the best thing for us. He always knows what's best. And it's, it's our job not to control you. We're not here to, to make you angry. But we are here to tell you what God knows to be best for you in your life. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes um, we even lose people for it. And it hurts. But don't shoot the messenger for delivering the mail. Okay? Believe me when I say that we don't like having some of the conversations we don't have, or that we have. We don't like risking our relationships and our reputations and the possibility of people getting upset and leaving. It breaks our heart. We do not enjoy it when people don't like it nor do we personally gain from it. But a true shepherd, not a hireling, will endure it. And he will do it. He will perform it anyway. Not because he's domineering, but because he's shepherding. Not because he seeks power, but because he seeks to please God rather than man. All right, let's close with four. I know I'm running through these now, but pretty plain language. Go home and restudy it. Verse four. 
When the chief shepherd appears, you, the elder, overseer, pastor, will receive the unfading crown of glory. We do what we do to hear the words that you want to hear. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Everything else is just a bonus, including this crown of glory. It's a bonus. Um, Crowns, of course, were something back in the Roman world, back in the times when Peter was writing this letter where they would have the games. That was their main form of entertainment was the games, much like our Olympics, right? And you'd have all athletes from all over the place that would come together uh, for these things, for these games. And they would compete. And the winner of the games would get a... They would get a crown, right? And it was usually made up of some kind of a plant or flower, sometimes like parsley. So think about it. Like you, you put all this work into training and to just jacking up your body for this event only to get like a salad on your head, right? Which is what they would get, basically. This one is not a salad. I'm convinced of that. I don't know exactly what it is, but it ain't a salad. I don't, I don't think this is something that's going to dry up or that's going to fade and fall apart. This is something that's going to go on. It's going to go on with the splendor of the King. It's going to go on with the heavenly bliss that God has set before us in heaven. And I don't know what the heck it is exactly, but I want one. I want one. What I really want to call your attention to in verse 4, though, is something else. And that is these words. The chief shepherd. The chief shepherd. Let me read you something real quick out of John 10. This is actually where we get our name. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep. And flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. We have any Gentiles in here? Welcome to the party. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock and one shepherd. With all this talk that we've done today of shepherds, overseers that exist in the church in all form of mere men, sinful men, imperfect men, there is over and above all of them a chief shepherd, a good shepherd. And the church belongs to Him. It is His. See, we earthly shepherds, we're roadies. He's the rock star. You know what I'm saying? Our job is to make sure that the show goes on for Him. Our job is to make sure that the stage is clear for Him. Our job is to make sure that the lights stay off of us and on to Him. We are caretakers. He is the owner, which means that we are under shepherds. He is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor if there is one. It is him. The rest of us, we're just wannabes. We just want to be like him. We want to be like him. We try to be like him. We desire to be like him, but we are not him. We will fail you, but he will not. And this is why you follow us or any other pastor that you may have only in as far as we follow him. The primary job of an elder overseer under shepherd is to point you to Jesus, the one true senior pastor of the church, because it is here that the pasture is green. 
And so our job is to get you better acquainted with Him. It is to get you to fall more in love with Him. It is to get you to depend more on Him. It is to get you to hope more in Him, not us. The thing that will kill a church more than anything else is if we build it on us and not Him. There was a church about 15 years ago in Bend that was a fantastic church with a fantastic pastor and a fantastic team that came in. I won't tell you the name of it, even though I can. That church no longer exists. It came into town, and about six months later, it's running probably 400 strong. And I had a lot of friends that were going there, and it was a gospel-centered church. These guys had solid teaching. They handled their scriptures well. Everything that they were, it just seemed like God was doing this work in this place in a powerful way. And a year later, the pastor fell. And after that, the church fell. It no longer exists. Because as good as it was, as good as their doctrine was and their theology, it was built on a man who was not Jesus. It was built on a personality. It was built on someone who was able to speak well and keep people entertained. I hope you understand that that's part of why we do things the way that we do here. We're not building this on anybody. If I went away tomorrow, this thing does not fall. It goes on. Praise God. It goes on. Because it's built on the King of Kings, the senior pastor, Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. And it is our job to keep you guys looking there and wanting more of that and pressing more and more into that. That's our primary job. Do you guys understand that? It is to lead you to more of Him. It is to give you more of Him because that's where the pasture is green. And when we're done with that, then it's our job to give you more. And then more. And then more Jesus. That's what it's all about. Thank you for letting me go so long today. I want you to know that we love you guys. I want you to know that we here are approachable. If there's anything that you need to access us for, or any, even anything in the scriptures that you saw that you might have a question about, or be like, I don't know about you guys with this part. Like, come and talk to us. Come and let us know. We would be grateful if you did. Lord, thank you that the church is built on you and not me. Thank you that it's not built on any man, but that it will prevail. It will come to completion. It will have full victory because you're going to see to it. Because you are the head of the church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Because you are the good shepherd and the chief shepherd and not a hireling, there will not be a sheep lost that you will make sure that every sheep that is yours remains yours because you're the perfect shepherd. I thank you, Lord, for what we get to do here. I thank you, Lord, for the work that you are doing here. I thank you that there is a light, a gospel light in the Three Rivers community. And I pray, God, that you would help us know how to turn up the brightness on that lamp, that we would be more about you each and every day that we would love better each and every day. That we would have more compassion for our neighbors, even our enemies, every single day. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.